Praise the Lord. Isn't it fun to worship together? I love worshiping our risen Savior. Uh, This morning, we're going to be in the book of Mark. We're continuing in the book of Mark. If you were here last week, where we left off. Book of Mark, chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 35 till the end of the chapter. And the word of the Lord says, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he, Jesus, was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him, and they said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray together. Lord, today, as we see the disciples brought out of the flood and enter into the blazing glory of the Creator of the universe who stood and spoke, Peace be still over the mute waters. May, Lord, we too recognize that in our storm, in the difficulty of our lives, Jesus calls out to us. Jesus works within us, not just to bring peace, but Lord, to reveal himself to us in a new way, in a way that you show us through your word. And Lord, would you do that today? That Lord, you would, we would speak in our hearts, that you would speak through your word, because we know that you choose to use the foolishness of preaching to change our hearts. We trust in you today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Any of you who grew up in church remember this story probably from the flannel graph. You remember your teacher showing Jesus in the boat asleep and then bringing in the storm and placing it behind the boat. And even unbelievers have heard about this story. And what I want you to recognize is this is in the book of Mark for a particular reason. Last week, we kind of looked at the framing of the book of Mark, so we won't do that again. But in this first part of the book of Mark, Mark is helping us to understand that Jesus is God, that he is the embodiment of God who came to earth to die on the cross for our sins and rise to a throne through death on a cross. That's who our Jesus is. And this morning, we look at a great outpouring of his power before his disciples. In fact, I'm sure many of you have heard this preached before, and you've heard an application something like this. Jesus, who calms the storm, is able to calm the storm in our lives. And that is very true. But there's more in this passage than just that. Jesus doesn't just help us through storms. He doesn't just calm storms. Jesus is sovereign over the storms in your life so that you may know him, 
so that you cry out to Him, so that you trust Him, so that you worship Him as your King. In every trial and every storm of life, there is an opportunity to learn about and to be transformed by Jesus the King. We're going to begin by looking in verses 35 and 36. These two verses, they see a relative calm here. And I say relative calm because you remember where Jesus is. Jesus is preaching here in his floating pulpit because the crowds had come down upon him so much so that he couldn't get away from the fact earlier this day he had gotten hemmed into a house so that he couldn't even eat. And now he has come down. He's preaching in his floating pulpit the parables, the four parables that we looked at over the past two weeks in church. And this morning, what I want you to recognize as we look at this first part is the sovereignty of Jesus. So in your bulletins, there's an outline there. And if you'd like to fill that out, that first blank is sovereignty. I'll work harder at giving you the blanks this week than I did last week. I'm used to preaching with a screen, and so I can just mention it and go. We don't have that, so I'll work at it. If you turn your bulletins over and look at the back of them, the very bottom, there's tiny font. There's all the blanks, just in case I miss one. Now all the kids are going to look at that and fill out their bulletins ahead of time. I'll try not to. But I want us to see, and by the way, this point pervades every single other point. We see the sovereignty of Jesus from when he moves from the shore to the storm. The Bible tells us, On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. We see his sovereign departure. Jesus says, let us go across to the other side. Jesus is leading this. He's taking a step towards where the disciples will end up. Mark, by the way, is usually the briefest of all of the synoptic gospels. That would be Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's usually the briefest account. However, this is, of each of those accounts that carry this, it is the longest account of this. And so we assume commentators, I shouldn't say we, but commentators assume that this was an eyewitness testimony of Peter that was passed on to Mark in great detail. And you'll notice there's a lot of details here. It tells us the time of day. It tells us the specific words that he spoke. It tells us he is leaving the crowd, that he took them with him in the boat just as he was. So he doesn't go back to the shore. He goes right out. And there were other boats with him. We see a cushion in the boat later. All of these details. Why do we see these details? Because this isn't just a story. This is an actual historical account that happened in this earth while Jesus was alive. This is important for us to understand. I think sometimes as we read the Bible, we get caught up in fairy tale land. We start thinking, oh yeah, I remember that. And, and we, we get these pictures that kind of help us think of this as a story. But Jesus here, through Mark, gives us these specific details of his sovereign departure from the land. And Mark here begins this by saying, on that day, this had to have been quite a long day for Jesus. He had begun this day in a home where people found out where he was and stormed the home so that he couldn't eat, he couldn't drink, he couldn't do anything. 
In fact, his family was so bothered by the fact that he was stuck in this home that they came out to rebuke him, to say, get out of here. We see the crowd's responses to Jesus in that. The crowd say, this is amazing, and they clamor to him. Jesus' family says about him when they're asked the question, who is Jesus, says, he's crazy. Why would you continue to do this? We see the religious leaders are saying this about Jesus. They're saying he's possessed by a demon. That's how he does all of these powerful works. And then there are some. There are some who are in this boat right now with Jesus. Who are learning that he is the sovereign king That he is the promised Messiah. And it is to those people that we see in verse 11, he gives them the secrets or the mysteries of the kingdom. These disciples have heard the mysteries of the kingdom. They have heard Jesus' teaching through parables. They have learned about the different soils and the way people respond to Christ. They heard about the light that penetrates the darkness, the seed that will grow, that will bear a harvest, a harvest that is greater than we can imagine. They had heard all of this as they are turning the boat and they are heading out into the sea as Jesus says, let us go across to the other side. The sovereign Lord was done with his teaching and he's about to catch up on some much needed rest as they sail across the sea. But I want you to understand something. Jesus is headed somewhere. And here we see the sovereign appointment. The sovereign appointment. You see, across the sea, if you look in chapter 5, verse 2 in your Bibles, there was a man who was heading out of the tombs to meet Jesus. And when Jesus steps out of the boat, immediately there met him a man out of the tombs, a man with an unclean spirit. We learned that this man was the maniac of Gadara. He's a man who storms out of the tombs. And Jesus has a, a divine appointment a sovereign appointment with this man where he will be transformed. And so when Jesus says, let's turn from the shore and from this teaching, he's going somewhere. But I want you to recognize, not only is he going across the sea, Jesus is taking his disciples into the sea. I want you to recognize this. Jesus is sovereign over the storms of your life so that you may know him as your king. Jesus is sovereign over the storms of your life so that you may know him as your king. Jesus takes his disciples from the relative peace, from the great victory. Can you imagine being a disciple of Jesus in crowds so big you couldn't even count them? We're coming, clamoring. I'd be so thrilled and so excited. And then Jesus says, let's go. Well, but this was, couldn't we just stay here? And Jesus goes away from the crowds, away from the thrill of that environment, into the storm. Why? Because Jesus is here inviting his disciples to know him. He is inviting his disciples to know that he is sovereign and in control. He demonstrates that very clearly in this passage, doesn't he? As he says, peace be still, what happens? Peace, it is still. The creator of the universe, the word made flesh, comes in and he speaks. And let me tell you something, each of you, when there is a trial and when there is a difficulty in your life, Jesus is calling you to himself. 
Sometimes trials make us think that Jesus is casting us away. Where is he? The psalmist often answers as he's going through these storms in his life. But I want to tell you that in the storms is when Jesus draws us to himself. And through his word, he reveals himself to us. And Jesus here is sovereignly leading the circumstances of these disciples' lives to bring him to a place where there is nowhere else to go but to him. So I want you to see that Jesus is sovereign over the storms of your life so that you may know him as your king. Each of you need to know King Jesus. I'm sure there are some of you in this room who know Jesus. You've heard about your sin, your need for a savior. You recognize that there is nothing that you can do to earn a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so you have cried out to him and he has come to you. But I'm also sure that there are some of you who don't know him. And Jesus invites you in the storms of your life, in the difficulties of your life to come to him. He invites you to come to Him for salvation. Because the trials of this life are bad and they are difficulty, but the trials of this, of, uh, that are beyond this life are far greater. And Jesus came to this earth. He went into this storm so that He could save many. So He could call His people to Himself. And so I call to you in the storms of your life, in the difficulty, if you don't know Jesus, come to Him. If today you say, I don't know how to do that, talk to any of us in Castle Rock Baptist. Talk to one of us from Crossway. We would love to show you from a Bible Jesus' invitation to know Him and have a relationship with Him. And so as we look at this, I want you to recognize that the Sovereign Lord, Jesus, invites us to know Him. Know Jesus. King Jesus in your trials. Now, everything didn't cross the the, uh, the sea with unicorns and rainbows. It wasn't just we go across and it's done. The night comes in and suddenly we see a great windstorm. We see the panic of the disciples. The panic of the disciples. And a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, don't you care that we are perishing? Some of your versions say, Don't you care that we are drowning? I want you to see, first of all, the storm on the sea. There's a storm that's going on here on the sea. And we see the wind. A great windstorm arose. The Sea of Galilee is known for these raging storms that come out of nowhere. The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long, about seven and a half miles wide, and it sits really low, 650 feet below the Mediterranean Sea. And what will happen is the cool air from Mount Horeb and the surrounding mountains around it will come down through the valleys and meet and hit the warm air that is rising from the lake and huge storms will arise out of that collision of this warm and cold air. One storm in March of 1992 sent waves as high as 10 feet crashing into downtown Tiberias, causing significant damage to the city. 
And these guys are in a boat. They're in a 27-foot by about 7-foot wide boat. I, I, through the week, uh, preached little pieces of my sermon to my families. I just kind of test drive, how's this going to go? And uh, I invited Brooke down to my office the other night, and I asked her if she'd heard this story, and I told her this story, and I told her it would be like being in a car in this huge storm. And, of course, she asked me, what kind of car? <laughs> And then I was like, 27 feet, that's a really long car. So it's something like a big old giant Cadillac. I told her yesterday it was like a minivan upside down because I could see a minivan sinking real fast. But um, we looked at that. And here, these disciples are in this boat and the waves are coming up. And remember the intention, the purpose of this boat. This was a fishing boat. Do you know what you do in a fishing boat? You take nets and you spread them and you throw them out. And so how tall are the walls on a fishing boat? It's as close to the water as they can get. So you've got this little boat, slightly larger than a rowboat, with these 10 to 15 foot swells crashing down upon it. I can imagine that you can hear wood beginning to crack. I can imagine that they are all bailing for all they are worth because it's already filling up with water and it's sinking This boat would have a small sail and usually two pairs of oars. And so I'm sure one of them was trying to wrestle that that sail so it didn't just toss them away. And others were, I'm sure, smacking away. Peter, I'm sure he was the one smacking away at those waves that they came fighting them off. But they're all terrified. And remember who these guys are. These men were fishermen. They had grown up on the water. They had grown up swimming. They had grown up and, and hit these huge storms like this. And here it is, a storm that has frightened, seasoned fishermen. So not only do we see a storm on the sea, but we also see a storm that is raging in the disciples' heart. A storm in the disciples' heart. Notice what they say. This storm is raging all of them around. All of them are trying to figure out one way to be able to fight it. And they come to Jesus. In fact, they they have a little vote. And they say, "Uh, John, you're sometimes the nicest of us. Could you go and and talk to to Jesus? And would you mind just, you know, waking him up and letting him know that we're a little frightened? I mean, just just come up and say, hey, uh, the other guys voted me in. And, uh, you know, if you hadn't noticed, there's a big storm going on and uh, we could use some help. That's not how it went, is it? (laughs) They say, teacher, we're drowning. We're going to die. And then they ask the very wrong question. Don't you care about us? Don't you care that I'm drowning? There are times in Jesus' ministry where if I was Jesus, I'd have snapped. (laughs) This is probably one of those. Don't you care? Well, yes, I care. I called you to myself. Yes, I care. I sovereignly led you into this storm. Yes, I care. I'm in the boat with you. Yes, I care. I'm in this world. I care. I'm headed to the cross For you, I care. I will die on the cross for your sins. Yes, I care. And what do they ask? Do you even care? Before we get too hard on the disciples, let me remind you that is often how we respond in the middle of our trials. 
and in the middle of our storms, in the very time when we ought to be laying a hold of the promises of God is when we are fleeing from them. The very time when we ought to be opening our Bibles and looking at His precious Word as a comfort is the time that we lay aside. The very time when we ought to be trusting in Jesus is the very time that we begin to start a flurry of action so that we forget about the storm or so that we solve the storm. If if you're like me, I'm always the storm solver. I'd have been the Peter fighting away those waves. I know it's useless, but I'd have been doing something. Each of us respond to our trials in different ways, but let me remind you that often in the storm, we respond in the wrong way. And in our hearts, we begin to ask, don't you care, Lord, that I hurt? Don't you care about my pain? Don't you care about the loss? Oh, Lord, do you care about this disease? Lord, do you care about what's going on in my mind? What's going on around me? Do you care about our world? And and you could go on and on and on because I'm sure each of you have in your mind at least once said, Lord, do you care? We cry out with Israel. My way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded from my God. We say, God doesn't know. He doesn't care where I am. But remember, Jesus is sovereign. And He chooses to lead His people into storms. He chooses to lead us into those places for a purpose. He leads us there so that we cry out to Him. And as much as we could say the disciples' question was the wrong question, They still came to the answer, didn't they? They came to Jesus, the Messiah. You know, when they were so surprised by what he did later, I wonder what they were expecting him to do. You know, when he says, peace be still, it says they were very afraid. And they said, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? And so I'll leave you with that question. What did they expect him to do? I don't know. But this was the one who they had seen make the lame man walk. They had seen him heal the blind. They had seen him cast out demons. They'd seen him even forgive sins. So if there's an answer, it's from this man, from this son of man, the King of Kings, the Messiah. See, what I want you to see is Jesus uses storms in your life to cause you to cry out to him. Jesus uses storms in your life to cause you to cry out to Him. The psalmist does this. And in fact, on the back of your bulletin, I have a a brief exercise for you in those questions to pour out your storm before the Lord using Psalm 42 and Psalm 43. In this psalm, the psalmist is, his soul is parched. And the only refreshment that he has is the tears that he is crying day and night. And there are people all around him asking, where is your God? And how does the psalmist respond? He rebukes himself and says, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation. He bears his heart before the Lord. This is what Jesus is doing in your storm. Jesus desires for you to cry out for Him. 
In the middle of the night, when one of my children get scared, they cry out to me after the initial anger because I got woke up. Our Savior didn't have that. And we're able to comfort them. It's dark and they're afraid of the dark. And they come and we hug them and they are safe. How does that make you feel as a father or as a mother? Do you realize that's what Jesus, that's what God our Father desires for us? To cry out to Him. And even though the disciples crying out was to be desired, they could have said something better. They came to Jesus. Cry out to King Jesus. But don't stop there. Realize we don't just cry out to Him so we pour out our heart, pour out our heart, pour out our heart. Yes, do that. But realize they come to Jesus and then Jesus does something about the storm. And we'll see the third point. Peace of the Savior. We saw the panic of the disciples and where Jesus is is very different than the disciples. I don't know how you sleep in a storm like this, but Jesus is resting in the boat. The Bible says he awoke and rebuked the winds. This is a very different picture than the disciples. They're running around in the boat. They're yelling at each other. You're yelling at Jesus. Where do we find Jesus? We got to do something. And where is he? He's asleep. I envy the ability to fall asleep right away and stay asleep. About a year ago, maybe two years ago, Jose and I and another man went to a conference together, and we were having a good theological discussion after the conference. And Jose looks at us and says, good night. He puts his head on the pillow, and immediately you hear him fall asleep. He's immediately out. And Chris and I just looked at each other and said, how? And then we fought all night long to fall asleep. But here is Jesus resting Jesus fell asleep, probably in part because of sheer exhaustion of the day. But also Jesus knew that God had sent him to this earth for a distinct purpose. And he would not die until that purpose was accomplished. The psalmist says it this way. This is David speaking. As Absalom, his son, is bearing down on him to kill him. He doesn't know what to do. He definitely doesn't want to kill his son, but he's fleeing. And so here's what he does. He says, O Lord, how many are my foes. Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation in him. Think about this. But you, O Lord... You are a shield about me, my glory, the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and He answered me from His holy hill. Think about that. I lay down, I slept, I awoke, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves all around me. What David is saying here, in probably one of the greatest turmoils of his life, is I trusted in the Lord, I laid my head down, and I went to sleep. Why? He trusted in Jesus. Because Jesus is trustworthy. How do we know that? Because Jesus did answer their cry. He awoke from his sleep. 
He stood, and in the midst of this raging storm, Jesus is the perfect example of trusting his Father, stands up and proves to all of us that he is trustworthy. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. Jesus rises from his rest and rebukes the wind and the sea. By the way, this is quite remarkable. I have tried many times to yell at the wind that flows and speeds up and down the I-25 corridor to stop. I, I used to do a bike race that ran down the frontage road, and I don't know how it happened. Every single time I headed that way, the wind's in my face. I turn around to come back, and the wind's in my face again. And I tell you, I told that wind to stop. I told that wind to come push behind me. I think there may be two times in which the wind was at my back coming down that. I have talked to the wind, and it's never answered me. But Jesus speaks to the deaf, to the mute wind. He speaks to the sea, and they are calm. Let me remind you that it was Jesus, the Word made flesh, that spoke at the very beginning of time and said, let there be light and there was light. Let there be oceans and let there be land and there was land. The creator of the universe stood and commanded these inanimate objects, the wind and the sea, and they obeyed. Calvin comments this way. When in doubt, go to Calvin. Calvin comments on this. Not that the lake had any perception, but to show that the power of his voice reached the elements which were devoid of feeling, Jesus spoke to them. See, Jesus isn't just brushing it away. Jesus stands and he speaks so that the disciples would see it. So the disciples would see him as the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is now practicing his lordship over the creation and rebuking it to be still, and it is still. And then we see something also remarkable. The winds are still, and the sea is calm. You realize that's not how it works when the wind stops blowing. The wind stops blowing, and it takes a while for those waves to stop going. Hendrickson comments on this. What is very striking is not only that the winds quieted down, but so do the waves. Generally, as is well known, after winds have been perceptively diminished, the billows will continue to roll for a while, surging and subsiding as if unwilling to follow the example of the now subdued air currents above them. But in this instance... Winds and waves synchronize in the sublime symphony of a solemn silence, something comparable to an evening stillness of the starry heavens settles upon the waters. Suddenly the surface of the sea had become smooth as a mirror. The sea was like glass, filled with the reflection of stars and the moonlight. Why? Because Jesus had spoken. Jesus rebukes the sea, but he also rebukes the storm in the disciples' hearts. Jesus doesn't leave it and go. Jesus looks, he rebukes the sea, peace be still, instantly they obey. And then he turns to the disciples and says to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? 
Jesus asks two questions here. The first one is, why are you afraid? This word means, why are you cowardly still? Why are you timid? Why do you run when nothing is pursuing you? But also notice this question is in the present tense. Why are, not why were, why are you so afraid? You see, the disciples' fear of the flood had only intensified when they saw the blazing fire of Jesus, the Creator's glory. As they saw a man who could speak to the wind and it obeyed. Why are you so afraid? Why do you flee? You know, in the middle of our storms, so often I'm fearful. Lord, what are you going to do with these circumstances? How are you going to work out this piece of my life? Lord, if you would just give me a roadmap that included something more than the next turn, I'd really appreciate it. And I get anxious. In fact, Nate rebuked me at the start of the service today, gently and kindly. He said, be anxious for nothing, because he saw me. I, when I'm about ready to preach, I, I just pace like crazy. I, I've got a whole lot of energy inside of me, and it's just got to come out somewhere. And so that's, that tends to be what I do. And so he said, peace be still. And to, this afternoon, it'll probably happen sometime. But you know, that, that, it, that does tend to be my gearing. I fly into a flurry of action. I fly into this flurry. I'll make it work. I'll fix this. We need to just do this step, this step, this step, this step, and we'll get this outcome. And God says, uh-uh. All these steps, and I've got a perfect plan for you that is better than you can imagine. You say, well, why does Jesus ask this next question? Why are you afraid? We get that. But why do you have no faith? Well, they were responsible now. Look back at verse 11. Chapter 4, verse 11. The Bible says this. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. You see, these disciples understood now the secret of the kingdom of God. Now, it's in shadows compared to what we have. But Jesus has spoken to them. And so now he rebukes them. Didn't you hear me as I gave you these precious promises? Didn't you hear me as I promised that seed will bear fruit, that it will grow and spread, that it is, it is incredible that it will do this? Haven't you heard me speaking? There is a purpose. I will accomplish it. And I have chosen you to work through to accomplish this. Don't you know? And while they had heard, The rubber meets the road when they're placed into a storm. You know, our theology is often phenomenal when we're in the peaceful parts of life. We believe God's sovereign. We believe he's in control. We thank him. We praise him. But when the storms begin to descend upon us, when the waves begin to go, often the stillness of that calm flees in our hearts and in our lives because we're fearful. The rubber meets the road. In the midst of our fiery trial, we doubt whether God's promises are true. We wonder if we've got it all wrong. Storms shake us into seeing if our trust is real. And let me remind you, it is a blessing when storms shake us because the result of these storms is to fix us in trust in Jesus. If Jesus can walk with me through the storm, 
then there is nothing that can keep my Savior away. The storms teach us that Jesus is trustworthy. Jesus uses the storms in your life for your good so that you learn to trust in Him. Trust King Jesus. Jesus reaches out to us in our storm and He asks us today, Why are you afraid, my child? Why do you still lack your faith? When Israel, earlier as we looked, asked this question, is my life hidden from you? Don't you care what's going on? God answers, have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint. He does not grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he will increase his strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Jesus calls you to walk with him in the midst of the storm. And there where you have no strength, where you have come to the end of yourself, he corners you to himself and shows you his love through his word, shows you his mercy through his word, reveals his promises to you through his word, and increases your ability to enjoy him even in the middle of the trial. It is interesting to note that this is a trial that happens on the water. The Jews weren't known as sailors. They left that to the Phoenicians. The sea to them represented challenge, mystery. In Daniel chapter 7, it represented monsters. But we see that Jesus is trustworthy because he is sovereign over even the elements. The psalmist says it this way, he gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the depths in storehouses. It's kind of the idea of taking water and using it as putty in your hand. If you've ever tried that, it doesn't work. Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty water, a path that no one knew was there. Psalm 107 tells us about the God who stills the sea, the one that we see standing in the boat, stilling the sea. However, Jesus' power over nature did not bring peace yet to the disciples' heart. And with this last point, we'll be finished. The crisis of the disciples. This is pretty simple. And they were filled with great fear and said to one another. So they were filled with great fear doesn't quite articulate what the original language here says. He uses the word for fear three different times. So it's kind of like saying they were filled with fear. Fear, really big fear is the emphasis of the passage. There's this idea that they weren't just in reverential awe saying, wow, look at what he's done. Like the crowds had been standing around him. They were terrified. They were shaking in their boots. Think about sandals. Think about Isaiah chapter six kind of fear. When Isaiah is ushered into the throne room of God and there he hears the cacophony of the angels, holy, 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 and he is immediately convicted of his sin and he falls and says, I am unworthy, I am a man of unclean lips. God comes and he purges him. That's the kind of fear that we see here. 
They were afraid of the ship and all they desired was to be in the boat in the stillness. But now that the flood was over, the blazing fire of the glory of Christ is shown. And I am sure some of those guys were getting ready to swim. See, our God reveals himself to us through the storms in a big way. The terror of these disciples. They were terrified. How could they stand to be in the presence of their creator? The one true holy God, the king of kings. The one that the waves and the winds obey. And here we see the disciples' discovery. By the way, it's a discovery formed as a question. Who then is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? This reminds me of a scene in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe by C.S. Lewis. The children learn in the story that Aslan is on the move. And then there's a rhyme that comes out. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of this roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. When he shakes his mane, we shall have spring again. You will understand when you see him, Mr. Beaver says. But shall we see him? Asks Susan. Why, daughter of Eve, that's why I brought you here. I'm to lead you so that you may meet him, said Mr. Beaver. Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the woods, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know that he is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he, is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. That you will, dearie. And with no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver, if there is anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just plain silly. Then he isn't safe? asked Lucy. Safe? said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he is good. He is the king, I tell you. And so it is with our King Jesus. Jesus humbled himself and came here to suffer and to die for his people, to become their king. But he is a king. He rules and he reigns. He will return for his people. This reminds me of Revelation chapter 5, that scene that we saw in that last verse of the song that we sang earlier, Living Hope. John is looking for someone to open the, the scroll so that God would pour his glory out upon the earth. And so that all would see who God is. And there is no one who is worthy. And John is weeping loudly. And then one of the elders said to, to John, Weep no more. And I want you to get this picture. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures among the elders, I saw a lamb 
A lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out in all the earth. What I want you to see is here we see the lion of the tribe of Judah who came to earth as a lamb so that he could invite us to know him and invite us to worship him as these angels and all that are around the throne do as they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed the people for God from every tribe and language and people and nations and you have made them a kingdom and a priest for our God and they shall reign on earth. Worthy is the Lamb. See, what I want you to recognize is that God uses the storms in your life to display His glory so that you would worship Him. Worship King Jesus. Jesus uses the storms to reveal to us His great power. To still our hearts, even in the midst of the storms. Because we know that we go to the Lord and sometimes we don't immediately have peace in our lives. We continue to go and we continue to struggle, but God calls us to hide behind Him the rock of ages, to count Him as our refuge, to cling to Him as our sure and steady anchor. So I want to call each of you, worship Jesus as your King in the midst of your storms, I want, you to, I want to tell you one more thing that isn't in this passage, but I think it's very important for you to understand. God has placed each of you inside of a body so that others may come alongside you and lift you up. Not so that they take your burden, but so that they can put their arm alongside you and lead you to Christ. Because there are some storms in your life that are so big you can't even turn to Christ. You're so struggling and God has placed you within his body so that you may turn to him. If you're in one of those places, talk to your pastor. Talk to somebody that you trust so that they may walk alongside you and that you together may stand before the throne of Christ and trust him as your king. Worship him as your king. Cry out to him as your king and know that he is the sovereign Lord.